I did say welcome, so welcome. Thank you. Uh, we're back with Cameo and Connor. We're here to talk about more things, products. Today is um, problems and opportunities. Sorry, I touched the camera for a second. What is um, so we're, we're just going to get to it, okay? We're going to start with a fun question. There's there's some debate here, and I want to see where you guys land on either side of this. We which, love debating. Good. good. That's, I love it when you debate. We get more engaged in that way. Uh, we have some debate. Okay. Which comes first? The user or the problem? I don't know why there's so many debate problems, honestly. Who's debating about this? <laughs> it's not, it's so, not us. So, so, so I don't. So you're telling me you're unified. Well, this. I'll say my answer, and then we, and then we'll. I see guess we'll see. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't. The idea is: should you take your target market and find the pain, or observe a pain and then find the market? So, <laughs> with, there can be no problem without a user. There is, there is no, no problem in the world that that doesn't involve a person, you right? Like you need a human for a problem. Yeah. Um, you also cannot solve a problem without empathy for the user. So how can you say, oh, I'm gonna go find a problem and then go and try and solve it. You have to, you have to find people who have problems and then figure out how to solve their problems. But, but to, to disconnect the problem from, from the person is half the problem with software development in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yep. Yeah. Like you might you might land in some opportunity space because of experience or background like I'm going into the automotive industry because I have access to people in automotive. But literally the like you see like my very first thought is I have access to the people yeah. in the industry. Like you might identify an opportunity but almost always it's going to I mean, maybe there's a scenario where it's like you're looking at financial markets or, but there's always going to be a person, right? Yeah. And how can you validate that a problem is worth going after unless you talk to the people about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, people, we build software for people. We build businesses around solving people's problems. So I think you always have to start with, with a person in mind. Yeah. Like innovation is for the humans. Yeah. For the people. Yeah, so you guys are... We are aligned. Uncharacteristically aligned. <laughs> uncharacteristically. No, we agree a lot more than we're probably given credit for. I we're 80, 70 or 80, 20. Is there, is there a threshold that you'd say as far as... So so let's... We're, we're selecting users. Okay. Is there a threshold as far as like how small or large of a group of users that you want to look at for when you're solving problems? Well... Ultimately, because you're probably building a business um, around, and you wouldn't necessarily have to, but um, you want you want a problem that lots of people have if you're trying to build a business, right? You can't you can't if you find a, a person and a problem that they're having, and you say, "Oh, I I have I I can get behind that problem." You definitely want to make sure that more than one or twenty people are having that problem, or it's probably not worth solving unless you can charge exorbitant amounts of money, right? Like if you're doing cancer research and you're trying to get a drug for a particular type of cancer that's incredibly rare, you still probably can get away with charging a quarter of a million dollars for treatment right. to cover your research costs. But if you're doing software development, there might not be a market that justifies it. In fact, it's a very common problem for people who are trying to innovate to find a good problem to solve that not enough people have. I think this is where like a lot of the business school strategy tools you hear about can actually come in handy. It's like Porter's Five Forces kind of stuff. I also, so you think about some of that, you know, like in the case of cancer, like huge barriers to entry. So maybe that's attractive. Maybe. If you have loads of money and high expertise, then maybe that's a space you're interested in. Yeah. There's a there's a matrix that I've had drawn for me a bunch of times that I draw too. That's like the x-axis is um, problems. And it goes from known problems to unknown problems. And then the y-axis is solutions. And it goes from known solutions to unknown solutions. So you know the, the the 
lowest quadrant on the far the bottom left would be a known problem with a known solution, right? And, and this is the space where it's just a race to the bottom on pricing. Right. Yeah. Um, and then and then there's unknown problems, known solutions. Like this is hammer looking for nail. This is like kind of Chad GPT right now. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean it won't be successful. It just right. means you you gotta find you gotta find why gotta it find should matter. Yeah. And sometimes you get lucky and your hammer was a good hammer, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, just to play the whole thing out, unknown problems, unknown solutions, like this is like a, this is the future. This is where like futurists, people who call themselves futurists, mm -hmm. love to sit. And then there's like uh, known problems, unknown solutions. Like that's cancer research. Like um, that's the spaces that you need loads of money and expertise typically to, to win there. Yeah. So. And all four of those quadrants have space for innovation, right? Absolutely. Even, even when you're on a race to the bottom. Yes. The innovation is the efficiency. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like silly bands. You guys remember silly bands? Like, there was, I mean, maybe that's a known solution with no known problem, but like, kids <laughs> kids love toys, like rubber bands. Like, wristbands were all the rage at that time, like, live strong bracelets. And then it's like, oh, a, a silly band. And then they crushed it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, you remember spinners for a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the moment. Spinners. yeah the moment. Yeah. Uh, depending on the path you take, how does this impact the way that you validate during the innovation process? How do you validate your solutions and problems depending on your user groups? This is assuming that our problem's been validated. That's right. That's right. Well, if we could even start there. How do we even validate the problem? Well. Start with our users. We start by not building software on top of it. Yeah. Um, you know, you come up with experiments. And... There is a large body of work about how you can validate ideas using experiments. Um, it was what Lean Startup was written about. It's what Testing Business Ideas is written about. Um, Teresa Torres. Teresa Torres. There's a lot of, there's a whole body of work on how you can test to see if somebody is interested in a problem or if there's an actual market for the, that problem. You know, the power of like paid marketing is, is the, can get in front of very targeted people and see if they'll click through on your stuff, you know? There's a there's a guy, a professor at BYU named Niall Hatch, who basically devoted his life to that question. Uh, he calls it entrepreneurial innovation, but he, you know, he's he runs an incubator that has like $3 billion of market cap at this point over like 10 years. And it's all started by students which is undergrad students even, mm. which is incredible to me. And um, he talks about access to the people. Like you, I was thinking about what you said about, you should have a ton of people. I was thinking about the Airbnb story because they had like one really, like one relatively small group of designers going to conferences, but the pain was so acute. Like when you find something that's such an acute pain, it's, it's likely that adjacent markets have inefficiencies as well. Mm. Like that's, that's the story of Airbnb. Like, of course, designers going to conferences were a minority of people trying to find like temporary not, not housing, a group. not a huge group, but the fact that it was so difficult probably should have been an indicator that other markets had inefficiencies mm. that they could spread into. Yeah. Right. The market was there and was big but they were viewing it as being smaller yep. than the potential of what yep. it was going to be. It wasn't mm. like their initial identified market didn't represent the, the full scope of what their market ended up being. Yep. Yeah. It's an interesting case. That's cool. Um, how about we go into defining, since presumably we're just talking about this, defining pain versus problem. Um, pain tends to be the emotional signal, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem is the actual action that we take. Um, yeah. Is is the pain just how like the intensity of the problem? I I mean I, I know that, that this delineation is often made. I'm not convinced it's as important as it yeah. yeah, well I guess the, the follow-up <laughs> question is are we trying to alleviate pain or solve this problem? 
again, I'm not, I'm not even certain that, that I know the difference. Um, and I knew this question was coming, so I'm not necessarily <laughs> trying to be contrary, but. Premeditated, premeditated contrarian. <laughs> but if I'm. That should be your new tag sign. Premeditated <laughs> contrarian, maybe. You know, if my foot is hurting, right? I have a bunion on my toe. Um, and every time I stand up and I walk, my, my foot hurts. That's that's a pain, right? My problem, it might be that my shoe's too tight. It might be that I have a bunion. It might be a combination of the fact that I have a bunion and my shoe's too tight. Tight shoe might have caused the bunion, or maybe I had, you know, I mean, there's... Or the problem's the reaction. Or the problem... Right, right. I mean, at the end of the day, I probably should start with just testing a bunch of solutions because because I don't know what the actual, I mean, the pain is is that my foot hurts. I don't know what actually caused it. It might have a bunch of contributions. If I'm trying to figure out an innovation to solve, if a lot of people have a, a sore foot, you know, I'm going to just start somewhere and... I'm going to test by providing a solution to to one of the problems that I think could cause it and then learning about it as quickly as I can so I can go move on to the next one because, and it's where the user is so important, right? Like actually it's something that, that Niall Hatch said to us the, the, the time that we met with him was a, kind of around, you you don't know what, problem is until you start to try and solve it and have people tell you whether or not that solves it right because if you at least once you provide a solution they can say well my foot still hurts right Right? like anything else if if you go into the situation saying i have i know what the problem is you're probably wrong it's easy to know what a pain is it's a lot easier to know what a pain is because somebody will tell you what the pain is but they don't always know what the problem is either that that's my perception on the problem Kind of a branches versus the trunk or the roots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to identify, I think. Yeah, and I mean, we love Niall, as you can tell, but his big thing is prototypes, like as low cost prototypes as possible. And so that's to, to Cameo's point, like he believes if you can get a low fidelity prototype into someone's hands, they'll tell you about their problem. Yes. Um, especially like if it's in a case of data, like if you have, if you can somehow funnel their data into it, they'll tell you if what you're doing works or doesn't for their problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that we missed this. One of my good friends is a CTO and my, my very first product boss, it works for him. And, uh, they were, they were both kind of talking to me the other day and it was the, the question is like, how much how much should the process hold weight? Like, like if you identify a problem and a pain and you make a prototype, uh, and, and let's say you don't do prototypes, and you go through your process, you do inter- you do surveys and then you do interviews and then you, you know, you do more surveys and interviews. Uh, like, do you know what to build? You don't. <laughs> you don't. Like, right. you know, you know more about the user. Uh, and so you can make a better decision on what to build, but you don't actually know what to build until you've built something and they tell you if it works or it doesn't. Right, and they tell you, this didn't solve my yeah, problem. Yeah, this doesn't though. actually work. Why did you do it that way? I told you about this other pain and you didn't hear it, right? Or, oh, I didn't realize this was actually the pain. It is interesting because I think product management, somebody on Lenny's podcast recently yeah. said, product management is just way too navel-gazy, you know? Yeah. And I think it's it's that, like, Research is super important, but the very best research is to give somebody a potential solution and to test that, you know, ideally in the very most cheap way as possible to say, hey, I believe your problem is this. Here's what I think a solution could be and learn what their actual problem is. Yeah, when so even in these scenarios, when we're talking about like selecting our users first, because it sounds like and, and you're, you're convincing me more and more. You start with the user. Uh-huh. And you discover the problem. What what methods do we even use to select our user groups? Like, how do you even know what users you care about? You know, if I want to make an app for, you know, DoorDash for private cooks, who 
how do I even get my tests in front of the people that would, this would be relevant? Hustle. Uh, so, so, knock on doors. <laughs> no, I, I mean. So here. It's only slightly tongue in cheek. I, <laughs> I think that most startups are founded by people who have typically deep domain expertise who have experienced a problem themselves and try and come up with a solution to, to solve it. Yeah. Now, it's different in the corporate world. Typically, for established organizations, that what should drive who, who is my customer is your existing markets, right? Like either you, either you have an existing market that you want to expand, in which case you have an existing user base, right? Or you're trying to break, break into a new market and, if, and you should have a body of research about why you would want to break into the market, meaning you've seen market trends that say there is a potential market that's kind of sideline to to where we're already playing but it's rare for organizations for large organizations to be able to radically pivot away from from the market that they're already in partially because like you use what you got and and ideally you're you're talking to your customers regularly enough that they're telling you about pains that they have that are sidelined to whatever your primary value proposition that you're already working on yeah I, I would say I, unless you're going into an incubator like the kind that is at BYU where, where essentially people are assigned kind of users to go and help mm-hmm. or, or kind of pro, um, customers to go solve problems for, I think it's pretty rare for somebody to just be told, hey, go figure out uh, a, a customer and a customer problem to solve. Yeah. Um, I just don't know that it happens that often. I, yeah, I agree. This, I mean, back to this grid, right? Like known problems, unknown problems. I think that maybe your question is kind of especially in the unknown problem space. Right. Um, I really do think it's like back to the strategy idea too. One thing you should consider is our access to customers. Like one of the most rational things incumbents, stakeholders at existing companies do is tell their product managers they're not going after some radically new market. That is extremely rational. Mm-hmm. Like, do you even have access to that market? Could you talk to, could you talk to 5% of the market? Could you talk to 1%? Do you have contact to some percent of the market that's meaningful enough to understand it? And typically the answer is no, right? I mean, if you're like, if you're building Wampets and you want to go after the widgets group and there's no overlap in your customers, then telling someone to pivot from Wampets to widgets is maybe a bad idea unless you have the the hustle to figure out how to get at the widgets people and they'll listen to you. Well, I think in corporate, you see a lot of like the rise of innovation labs where, Mm. where people will drop in like innovation labs and those innovation labs are staffed with innovators who are supposed to go and find customers and problems to solve kind of, which is, a, I've always thought a real almost backwards way of looking at innovation yeah. within, within a market and an industry, especially if you really know your customers, there's a ton of opportunity and potential to be able to innovate without needing to switch from widgets to wampets. Are there cheaper ways or better ways that we can define design our widget so it delights our customers better? That would be innovation. Are there ways that we could figure out how to radically lower the costs involved in those so that we could sell them at a better cost or, you know, figure out how to make a silly thing, whatever that is, that's because we're already making that widget, right? There's so, always so much potential for innovation without needing to jump to jump to a different market. Finding new users. Finding new users. There's There's a whole lot of... Really, there's a lot of different types of innovation, and it doesn't always need to be in the unknown unknown, you know? Well, and it makes sense that, like, in the corporate space, you use the resources that you have. Right? Uh-huh. If I have half a million users, then trying to make them pivot yeah. to, to seem, seems counterproductive, uh-huh. right? So, and yeah, that makes sense. When, when we're talking about users and the research that we do to try to discover the problems and the pain points that they have. 
Um, how do how do we leverage uh, empathy research and and human centered design principles into uh, like to help directly help us in our product development in our our decisions that we're making? We are ideally talking, getting out of the building, um, talking to actual people first before we start coming up probably with even our ideas of of any of that. I mean. Human-centered design advocates for talking to the customer first, um, which is pretty rare, honestly, in most corporate environments and in most startup environments. It is not uncommon for people to get all the way down to signing their MVP or designing their next feature set without ever talking to a, 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 a customer. That is um, terrifying to me. It is terrifying to me, too. You know... I, I truly believe that teams should be on a cadence where they are talking to their customers regularly throughout every sprint. And like empathy is kind of easy because if you're actually talking to real people, it's pretty hard not to have empathy. You know, it, somebody who's, who's using maybe not even a product, but an idea and they're, they're talking about it. It's, it's hard to listen to somebody talk about something that they're going to use and not kind of feel what they're feeling. Yeah. I love reported desk sites, user journey maps. Like a, I don't even, I probably use that word wrong, but even the idea of if you know kind of the opportunity space or industry or like where you want to, which people you want to focus with, just even going with them. My very first startup was, well, probably not my first, but the first one that had any traction <laughs> that we did it this way uh, was for people primarily in wheelchairs. So I found an old electric wheelchair and me and all the founders took like turns for four to five days each, like in the wheelchair full time, trying to live our life in a wheelchair. And uh, we already had a user journey map. We we're just trying to find more empathy. <laughs> But like the very first thing we did is we sat down with people who were primarily in wheelchairs and said, like, tell, like literally walked with them the whole day and just said, you know, and you say, how typical of a day was this? Um, and then you just like write down everything. And anytime you see them having a problem, you just say, tell me about that. Right. And you just do it. We did the same thing in warehouses and with auto mechanics as well. We just like watch them for a whole day and, and then try it for a whole day. And you will almost certainly find something. This is also why I have so much personal passion about bringing the engineering mind into the problem space. Because, yes. because if you shut your engineers off from that potential yep. of empathy, you they also can't bring their mind to the problem, right? They can't, yes. they can't, they don't get the benefit of, oh, now I understand, right? Like, what it is to not have to be in a wheelchair all day. I would. This is why I would love Nerd Prime to have a feature where we like integrate with one of these session captures. Okay, cool. It's like okay, we're capturing a session, and we have our little CSAT or NPS tool. Anytime there's a low one, we just like bank those, and then we let the engineers earn points by watching watching low CSAT oh, recordings. No, that's cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, cool. oh, this person had a failure. They gave us a one out of 10 on customer satisfaction. Uh -huh. And now the engineers can earn points or whatever by watching it. Oh, that's super. That's a really that's a, cool idea. Yeah, that's a fun idea. Um, honestly, that's kind of been the method that my team working on, on customer service tools, right? Mm -hmm. We go and we take calls. We yeah. sit yep. and watch them go through it, right? The, the nice thing about the phases of this company is that we, we started in such a startup phase that, you know, me and, and my lead engineer are literally sitting next to customer service. Yeah. And we're like, how do I even fix this? And we're like, we don't know. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, sure. We'll figure it out. And it makes sense. It's funny because like you say it now and it seems like an, a, like a formal process of like, go spend time with your user. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it's funny to me because... I realized like that that tends to be a lot of people's base idea, right? Uh -huh. Oh, I should just go spend time with them. It's, uh -huh. it's not actually that complex. You just go hang out. You yeah. See, see what makes you mad. But it's still incredibly rare. 
It's that scary. I believe, that I believe. It's surprising to me that it's rare, but I do believe it. I mean, in my career, in the tools that I've built over time, when I would go, and I've specifically been designing or producing customer service tools for a long mm-hmm. time, um, I would go and interview customer service all the time, and and it seemed like a special thing to them, and I, was, I just never understood how people could make decisions right. if you weren't doing that. Yeah. Like, especially if you're trying to come up with cool ideas to make flows better, to, to create efficiencies, that kind of stuff, you have to spend time slamming your head against the desk like with them. Yeah, you do. You're just not gonna get it. You, you gotta do. be careful that you don't get bought into the idea that you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's what's interesting is I, I have met people, you know, we talked about it last time, when you're in a feature factory, people just think they know what will solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually spend time with the problem, mm-hmm. you know? And and it's interesting with, with larger corps because sometimes up above, you'll, you'll think that you have a problem because like workforce management is, is reporting numbers that you don't like. Yeah. And you need to go correct these things. And really, customer service is completely unrelated to the problem that they are imagining. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I'm surprised that this isn't more common for people to spend time with their users. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been doing this a minute. Yeah. Why, why? Why don't they? That's a good question. Why don't they? Like that's, I mean, that's the question we're asking. Yeah. I, we're trying to make a consulting business out of the fact that that's reality. <laughs> I... I believe that, well, I think that it is a natural inclination for people to be, want to be right and believe that they are right, right? It's, it's, it's part of, of the ego that, that is built into humans. Yeah. You put that into a corporate structure where typically you have people who rise through the ranks, their managers, their upper managers, and like traditional business management says if you go to a top tier college and you learn business management the way that business management is supposed to work then you have achieved the right to come in and have a, a strong opinion and be right right you're you it's like being a doctor and you're right when you say i think you have a bunion on your foot because you because you went to harvard <laughs> The same thing is it's it's hubris kind of by education and kind of by authority where I'm right because I'm the executive or honestly, you see the same kind of behaviors for engineers or even for product managers. I'm right because I'm an engineer and or I'm right because I'm the product manager. Or I talk to customers because it's my job, not yours, engineer. Yeah. And now I'm right because I, I, I have this special path to the information. I'm the gatekeeper of the interviews. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've noticed that because like in, in previous jobs, especially in like the business analyst career, you it's largely prescriptive, right? Uh-huh. You, you, you measure the gap. You fill that gap with whatever engineering plan that you have and you get in there. And this, as, as product management goes, it's really interesting because this is so much more about facilitating, uh-huh. you know, trying, trying to get the collaboration from all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's, well, one, it's way more fun. <laughs> it's way more fun. It is way more fun, know, right? Just cranking out documents on what you think is going to work and yeah. you just hope it sticks, yeah. right? But like the actual facilitation, I think, cause of way higher chances of success if you're doing it right. If you're actually bringing your engineers to the customer service floor mm-hmm. or whatever it is, you know, this is, this is my example because it's the, the reality I'm yeah. in right now. But if you're bringing everyone to the table and, and letting them talk, like you said, the, the empathy just happens. Mm-hmm. If you have people face to face and then, you know, like my lead, my lead engineer has had this, the whole reason he wanted to be on this project was empathy. Right. He wanted to help. Yeah. Because we all work together and he, he could identify that they were having these problems. Yeah. So so we're spending time in this problem space. We're looking at the way that our users are experiencing pain. How do we how do we actually identify the opportunities now that we're in the space? It's always the same thing. We come up with li- the smallest solution that we can and we get it into users' hands as quickly as we can. Really 
experimentation and prototyping should drive everything we always do, always and forever, right? Like there, yep. there should just, and and I think it just requires a cultural shift where I'm calling this replacing assumptions with evidence as just like, you have to move your entire corporation from being assumption driven to being evidence driven because it's natural for people to believe that they have the right idea and everybody in the organization believes they have the right idea, right? You can go talk to the janitor and he believes he knows what you need to build in your product mm-hmm. to solve the problems, right? Everybody has a solution. And I, I think probably one of the most wasteful things organizations do is spend time, allow people to spend time debating solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you spend time arguing about that? I think I have a better idea than Connor. It's it's a, so wasteful. Come up with a, an experiment that you can run yep. and replace your assumption with evidence yep. and, and drive the conversations about assumptions into everything that you do because you're just wasting so much time chasing and arguing about assumptions. I've actually, I have a, I have a little notebook that I keep now. Um, that and this comes up all the time. I'll be in meetings with with stakeholders. I'll be writing stand ups, whatever it is, and it's my assumptions journal. Right? Mm, yeah. And anytime I'm like, wait, do we know that? Yeah. How do we wait? <laughs> how do we know do this? We know this? Yeah. We maybe don't. That's know the this. question. How do we know that? How do we know that? That's a question that's really hard that? to not answer. It is. Yeah. Like when you ask when someone says, "Well, it's this," you say, "How do we know that?" Yeah. And as long as you ask it with the right tone of voice. Right. It's, it's delicate. Yeah. It is. It is. That's So uh, a hobby of mine is, um, colloquially, it's called street epistemology. And okay. the whole idea is, tell me something that you believe in, and tell me about the methods that you use to determine that's true. Sure. And it's just fun for me. I, I find people are really interesting. They have a lot of great stories to tell when they tell you why they think this thing is true. Uh-huh. Um, you get a different response when you're at work, when you want to ask about, like, how do you know that's true? Oh, interesting. They go, well, what do you mean? <laughs> what do well, because that's, that that's not a common true. question. In well, the and knowledge is power. Yeah. So if you're questioning someone's knowledge, yes. uh, right. you're saying, how powerful is that knowledge? Yeah. That's what you're yeah. saying. Well, we know this about customers. How do we know that? You're saying, how powerful is what you're saying? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's scary, especially when an executive is saying, we should build this thing. And you say, how do we know we should build that thing? You're basically questioning whether they have the authority to tell you what to do. Right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. For everyone. For the whole room. <laughs> that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting problem. Um, well, and I believe that the way to start to bring that idea into things is we as individual builders have to be willing to apply that same yes. criteria to ourselves, right? Yeah. It's it's always, you see it all the time of product managers, especially, they'll be like, hey, my stakeholder's trying to get me to build this thing. I believe we should build this other thing. And you say, okay, what evidence <laughs> do you have, right? And they also don't have evidence. Yeah. They who wins put, that battle? Well, they, <laughs> well uh, yeah, they lose that battle all the time. So if you want your stakeholders to take seriously evidence, you have to be willing to let that evidence disprove your own theories first or your own belief systems first, and then hold those up as, as a, oh, I had this theory and I was wrong. And, and here's how I disproved it. Because then it's, I think, I think Kim Scott in um, Radical Candor, she says you can't expect people to be, to accept candor until they've been able to give you candor. Right. As a leader, you can't expect people to be okay with you being super aggressively candid with them unless they've already gotten to do that to you first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I like I mean, for me, when I even at work, you know, if my answer is, oh, I don't know. Uh huh. I like that because it gives that means I I get to go learn. Yeah. I'll go find out. Uh I I don't know, but I'll find out Um, because of that. I love it when someone else tells me they don't know. Yeah. You know, it's my favorite because it's like, cool, I'll learn with you. Yeah, you sure, exactly. Let's go find out. Um, I've I've learned that in my time doing this, <laughs> you 
I had to kind of acclimate some some of my some of my team to like it's okay to not know. I want you to tell me if you don't know because then we will go figure it out. That's that's the actual innovation, right? Well, and that's pretty breakthrough just because like I don't know is we look down on people for not knowing, right? right. You you hire a professional because you want them to know. Yeah. And in fact, like having an assumption or a belief about something is not inherently wrong. We are hired as professionals because we have expertise and we're bringing the expertise to the problem. But we just have to acknowledge that expertise doesn't equate being right. Wouldn't it it be great in some dystopian future whenever someone at work told you one of something that they think is right? There's just like a scale of one to 10 of how, how much information they actually have about the thing right. they're telling you. Right? It's like, well, and, and your boss is saying something, and it's like there's like a two out of ten above their head, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> it would be really good next to also their confidence. And, and yeah. Like, I have I have a two for information, but I'm like an eight. Okay. Well, let me, let me add, wait, can wait, I add one, yeah, one add, thing. Add no, he just, he just pushed my, my appointment. Just a second. Fantastic. I would – Cameo touched on this by bringing in Brad with candor which is inherently a communication book. The, it's, I think one of the issues we have too is we have all these product managers who, I think a lot of product managers, if you ask them what are their strengths, something that would appear in the top five, the most common things would be like communication or storytelling. And which in my experience is just not hold the whole truth. Like, in this example Cameo used where it's like your executive has an idea and you have an idea and neither of you have done that, like any evidence finding that's inherently a communication problem. Like you failed to communicate to them that you had another idea that you thought was better. And now they're communicating theirs to you. Or even if you did, you've, you've like, you failed to tell the right story. And, And so if you can, if you're finding evidence, that's great. But if you don't know how to communicate or do the storytelling in addition to the evidence, then it won't it won't matter. Because if the moment that someone shows up with more authority on what's getting built and says, we're building this thing, and you haven't told them about the evidence you've been gathering, uh, you're kind of in a, you just put everyone in a really crappy place. Yeah. Because they're all stoked about their idea you know it's not the right direction, you think, because you have evidence to suggest it's the wrong direction. And now you have to somehow tell them the story and communicate without basically telling them they're wrong. People don't like to be told they're wrong. Yeah, especially around other people. That's right. I, this is why I also think that we need to kind of radicalize Agile. Um, most Agile is it's implemented in most organizations because it's primarily Scrum. There is not a systemic focus on learning, right? So it's a lot easier to, as an individual product manager, as a member of a team, to to rely on learning if the processes that you're using have learning embedded in them, right? If If you're using like a regular learning readout where there's an expectation that in addition to developing or demoing working software, you're also demoing this week's learnings, right? And I, I think that if if we could make a revolution of how people think about how software is developed so that the expectation is learning is part of the output of a team, right? That is, if you go and ask executives and most software developers and most even product managers, what are the primary outputs for a software development team? It's yep. code, right? It's, yes. It's working, testing, and software. stories. And stories. <laughs> but but those two things, absent of learning, are a, it's how you get to a feature factory. Right. So so you if if you believe that learning is the key to innovation, you have to build your system, you have to systematize the learning because the learning is the thing that will get you the results. And you can't have, mm. learning can't be a, a radical act Reach. that an individual <laughs> is, is responsible for that requires them to step out of the, the, 
the flow, right? Right now, if you want to bring learning into most organizations, you're a radical. Yes. So if yeah. if if we want to to truly make innovation like systematized, you have to make learning systematized. You would want an executive that said, "Why aren't I? Why aren't I? I haven't seen a learning readout in three weeks. Why why am I not seeing? I haven't seen us kill a feature. I haven't seen us." Pivot right, like those things. I haven't seen prototypes. Right? I haven't I'm seen prototypes. Seeing, yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing proofs of concepts coming out of the development team. All I'm seeing is is features which are good, but they're um, they're a piece. Oh man, so many thoughts. So I watched um, Jeff Patton speak last week, and he's kind of advocating right now. Engineering teams should look at every. We'll call them story, but every body of work, and they should say, is the effort with this for the for us to earn, or is it the effort to learn? And that everything that sh should come through the flow of work should be kind of tagged as that. Oh, we're building a thing, and we have a goal to come out of it with a set of learnings. Here's what we want to learn. Or we've learned these things. Now, this particular piece of software is designed for us to sell. And now this is an earning piece of software. Which I think is, I think is a good idea. I also just think that if you make learning an expected outcome for a team, it just changes the trajectory of how everybody thinks about about what a team should be building. Especially yeah. if the engineers get to own it, right? Dual track is really popular, mm -hmm. but dual track has kind of UX and product on a learning track and engineering on a building track. You want your engineers on the learning track too, right? Like it, it, they need to be spending a sizable amount of their time thinking about how am I learning and what are the things that I need to be learning and and why do I want to be learning. So yeah. how do we learn about our users? Is is this just interviews? Can no, I, it's, it's can I go back on this really fast? Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, let me start with this one. Industrial design does this really well because there's two big barriers to entry. Time, like you can't just go make mold, like it takes time to build a physical product mm -hmm. and money. You can't just go build molds for a product that you don't know for, like almost certainly is going to make money. you will money. spend between a quarter of a million and a half a million dollars cool. just, just on one mold. Right there. You're talking and, about the Tesla mold. Yeah, I mean, like there's thousands. That's, that's for a little yeah. widget, right? And software, software doesn't have those same barriers. Mm -hmm. You can build software fast compared to industrial design. It's sure. lightning sure. speed, sure. and it it does actually cost a lot of money, but not until it's too late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't cost you a lot of money until you ship the thing. And what's the what's the streaming service that had like a billion dollars of yeah, investment um, and it was built? It has a J. I mean, CNN, and Plus, it's, it's CNN a Plus is another one. Yeah, they just Meg Meg Whitman's yes started. Like it didn't cost a lot of money until it was all the way built and no one wanted it. Yeah. They spent <laughs> they spent billions of dollars. They spent over a billion dollars in eight months. And Quibi. so Quibi, that, thank you. Quibi. Quibi. Um, so we don't have that. And so it's really easy to say, well, we just need people producing. We just need people writing code. Like yeah. back to the first episode, line in the water. We just need line in the water or we're not catching fish, right? And the, this is my this is my thing to, to quote Mike Tyson. Like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Like that's great. Now imagine having no plan and getting punched in the face. This is the equivalent of never talking to customers. You have no plan. You launch your thing and then you get punched in the face. It's like you're walking down the street. Like if, at least if you're in the boxing ring, you know it's coming. If you're just walking down the street, you get punched <laughs> in the face. Like this, like this is a really bad situation. Yeah. Um, the the other thing on Agile Scrum, I I we have project managers here. I love them. I think they provide a lot of value, like resource planning, helping us identify risks, asking hard questions about delivery. Helping make sure we understand delivery. My project um, manager is out on paternity leave right now, and it is difficult. Uh, it's and, and that is all time. so helpful. Yeah. If you think about this, is the thing that maybe they're not going to like, and I love you, project managers. Um, <laughs> if you think about like an MVP of Agile, like when I got here, we we're an MVP of Agile mode. 
what are the very first things that you implement? Like when I talk to my project management colleagues, they say, well, Agile is about learning. It's about learning. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the, what are the first meetings? Stand up, not learning focused. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, backlog grooming, not learning focused. Sprint planning, not learning focused. In there, fact, there's not a single meeting there that's There's learning. not a single meeting in the MVP of Agile or even the fully fleshed Agile. Even the retro is, is, is only for learning about how the team could optimize yes. for delivery. Yes. It is not about learning about the, the customers or learning about how the product is, could be iterated on. And so we have all these, we have the Agile Manifesto, which I, I actually really appreciate. I love it. It is, they talk about it's more about the customers. Well, and it's, it's more about learning. And then the implementation of Agile Scrum has no learnings or customer focus required anything. It's it's why I've started to reframe it. I, I don't believe that Agile is inherently the problem because if you read yes. the manifesto, if you read the 12 principles, they are very focused on customers and learnings. Um, it's, it, I personally believe it's now just kind of scrum is the problem. Scrum is a, a manifestation of the problem. Yeah. Safe is even a worse manifestation of the problem. But part of the problem for scrum is it's also the most popular version of Agile. And it's a version that everybody believes they know how to do well. Yep. And, but the, but ugh, yeah. So what do we give, what do we give our project management friends? What, what can we, like I, I, all of them, I talk. Everyone I've talked to in projects, they don't, they don't want to not be learning focused. We we just we just say we want to radicalize our agile process. Yeah. By implementing some additional ceremonies. Yeah. There should be just like with stand up, and stand up really shouldn't be about status ever. Stand up is not a status tool. Um, there should be a, something that happens right after status that's about learnings for the day. I know. I think you guys are doing something yes. like this. Yeah, we do. There should be a job. <clears throat> in addition to demoing software, a team should demo learnings. And, yeah. and it should be something that is done, you know, a, a sprint demo should be to demo software and it should be to demo learnings. Yep. And if your team is carrying stories from sprint to sprint, you have to stop it because quit. You, right now you quit right now because it's a drug. You cannot learn off of unfinished software, right? Mm -hmm. The only the only ways you can learn is to take a proof of concept or a prototype to market, or to take working software to market. But the piece of software that will never let you learn is something you don't finish, right? And and so a toxic behavior for any agile team is carrying stories. If you're carrying stories, you should go and in your next retro, figure out how to never carry a story again. Put less stories in a sprint, make your story smaller, because the, the goal for working tested software isn't that we want to have software in market. So we can learn from the software, right? The learning is always the point. And so you've got to be able to get your software into market and actually deliver it. I think it was yep. I think it was Jacob, our our data guy, said he had worked at a place that would that had A B software like kind of a really good AB infrastructure, but they would blind deploy all of the all the things all the time. And like people weren't actually testing it. They're just, they're feature flagging everything and building software and not releasing it, which is just as bad as not building the software. Anymore, so. Yeah. You got, you got to get the software that you build into people's hands or they can't give you feedback about it. You can't learn. Yeah. So, so it seems like there's two forms of learning, right? There's the, I, I see a problem, I see users, I see pain, I think I have an opportunity, what can I learn here before we start building? Uh -huh. And then there's, we've delivered something, let's see how they interact with it. I think there's also, and this is a non-product learning, this is an engineering learning, I think there is, I'm going to build this portion of this solution to see if this is technical feasible. Mm -hmm. I'm going to build... A, a portion of the solution to see if this is um, feasible on the business side, right? I, I think you yeah. can have, I, it, when we're thinking about how to replace assumptions with evidence, not everything is necessarily about the user. Sometimes 
it's about the assumptions we might have about the technical landscape or, or the systems and, or and and again your goal should be what's the very smallest thing I can do to get evidence about the assumption that I have and and depending on your solution or your problem you might have a prototype that's a live data prototype where you're just pulling out the data because you think the data is important and and you can take data and in 30 minutes, put it into a dashboard that's not hideous. Mm -hmm. And so maybe all you have is a backend engineer and you say, I just, or maybe you you know some data stuff yourself, Python or SQL or something. You just pull the data out and you, and then you write on a piece of paper, hey person, I'm building this product. What if it told you this stuff about you? And it's their data and they'll, they always say, oh, is this my data? And you say, yes. And then you have their attention. Or if it's on the flip side, it's less about the data, then maybe you just build like a sham front end, even in Figma. Like it does, and you can click through it. Literally a wireframe. Yeah. yeah. And then that can teach you so much. Like those are prototypes. The other side of this, and this is kind of on the engineering development side, I work with a really great architect, and his mantra was always hit the hardest problem first. And yeah. so like new API nobody's ever worked with before, he he would have his engineers build a little mini proof of concept utilizing that API that was ugly, that it was just to test, can we get the data back and forth, right? He's testing a feasibility assumption in the simplest ways possible because that was going to drive a lot of the decisions around the product. But in product, a lot of times we don't necessarily think about what else we can learn that's beyond just a customer's desire that might help us understand like how to be more agile yeah, ultimately. Absolutely. That's all the time we have for this episode of Product-ish. <laughs> Thanks so much to Cameo and Connor for joining us and sharing their thoughts. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to tune in next time for more conversations about product innovation. Until then, I'm Dallin Curry, and this has been Product-ish. <laughs>